Praise God. Um, we're doing a series as a church at the moment. We're going through uh, 1 Corinthians. We're talking about the church. And uh, particularly at the moment, we're talking about spiritual gifts. So we're looking at the chapters between 12 and 14. So if you're visiting, I'm sorry you've missed the rest of the series. You can catch it up on the web if you're so inspired after this talk and, uh, and uh, keep up with us. So um, I'm just going to put a picture up on the, wall, on the screen here. I don't know if you saw this photograph that was taken. I actually thought it was quite moving. Uh, it was obviously President Obama hugging uh, this marine owner called Donna, Donna Van Zandt, as he was there to inspect the storm damage from Hurricane Sandy in New York. And I found myself wondering, what, what, what was she thinking? How did she feel? Because Obama could have come in all sorts of different ways to that lady. As the leader of the free world, he could have tried to impress her with his power, which was considerable compared to most of us, or he could have made all sorts of promises about vast sums of money that were at his disposal, and he could have made speeches about how everything was going to be wonderful in the future. He could have used it as a political ploy, the perfect opportunity with all the cameras there. I think he showed remarkable restraint. And Donna, who presumably lost everything at this point, got a hug. (laughs) She got a hug. Well, admittedly, he was the most powerful man in the world and pretty good-looking, I understand. I've been told this. <laughs> Apparently, he got more votes from single women than anybody else. I think some married ones might have slipped in there, too. But to have a hug from Obama and just kind of say, well, it's okay, I'm here, I think it's pretty amazing. And, you know, I think that that hug would have communicated far more to that woman than all the displays of power, authority, clever insights and promises that he could have given her. He said very little to this lady, actually. He actually just gave her a hug. I think that it spoke volumes. I like it, and I think it's excellent. And for me, this is a poignant picture and a great reminder of the point that Paul makes at the end of 1 Corinthians 12, when he promises to show the church his most excellent way. His most excellent way to do leadership. His most excellent way to do leadership, where many at Corinth had sought to dominate, to exercise power, where many had sought to impress, to do church, where many had thought uh, it was about promoting the strong and putting down the weak. He wanted to say... I want to show you the most excellent way to do all these things. I want to show you how to do church, how to do leadership, how to do ministry, and it's this. It's love. It's love. So let's just read the passage. Uh, We're going to read the whole of 1 Corinthians 13. We're going to start just before the end of chapter 12. And here it is. I will show you now the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have... 
Yeah, slightly ahead of your cue there. But um, <laughs> he's just so anxious, so anxious to annoy me that. Just wait a minute, please. I'm sorry, you just can't get actors uh, when they're free uh, to do what you ask them to do. But there you go. I'll, I'll nod when it's time, okay? okay. Right. It's ruined my illustration for later now. Okay. Um, <laughs> I know I said, could you be really annoying? I didn't mean then, you know. So, okay. Um, <clears throat> So if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am only as annoying as Steve Wicking. (laughs) If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames but have not love, I gain nothing. Because love is patient. Love is kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It's not proud. It's not rude. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects. It always trusts. It always hopes, and it always perseveres. Love never fails. Where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be still, but where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, but when I became a man, I put childish things away from me. Now we see, but a poor reflection in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am known. And now these three things remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. And, you know, this is probably one of the the best-known chapters in the Bible. It's often read at weddings, Funerals, poets like to perform it, actors like to dramatize it. In fact, this passage has become so well known, I think it's in danger of losing its true relevance or even being identified as part of the Bible. Steve Wicking, my friend here, who I love, um, he told me that apparently when this passage was read at uh, Princess Diana's wedding many years ago, that the BBC was inundated with requests for copies of those verses because people didn't even realize that they came from the Bible. So what is it? Is it just a nice passage? Is it just a nice passage? Because even to us, this passage is potentially no more than a beautiful piece of poetry or a collection of idealized sentiments about love. Because if you've noticed, it doesn't even mention God in that passage. God is not mentioned, and I think that's why it's so easily acceptable by so many. And so it's essential when we come to 1 Corinthians 13 that we firmly place it in the context of the whole of the book of 1 Corinthians, and in particular that we place it into the context of Paul's teaching on the use of spiritual gifts. And I don't think it's any accident that 1 Corinthians 13 is sandwiched 
between these two great chapters on spiritual gifts which form Paul's clearest teaching. And so look what's in Paul's sandwich. Love. And it makes the sandwich all the more palatable. Uh, He wants us to see that love is greater than any gift or act of service. And so it's love that must motivate us to use spiritual gifts in the first place, and love that must be present in the use of every spiritual gift if they're to be of any use at all in building up the church. Love is greater than them all. Love is the most important thing. And, do you know, this is quite some passage. If, if it's taken seriously, if it's correctly applied to the local church, then this is no pretty piece of high-minded prose. In fact, it's dynamite. What local church could stand up against such standards of love that Paul lays down here? Who could stand up to them? It uncovers our weaknesses, it exposes all our gaps, it interrogates our motives, like no other passage. Actually, to live like this as a community of people, to live up to these standards of love, I think is humanly impossible. That we could ever be so loving, that we could ever be so patient or lacking in self-centeredness. Because the love that Paul holds up as the standard for the functioning of the church, which is what this passage is about, is the standard of God's love and God's love alone. It can only be about God, and it's only possible through him, with his help, because none of us comes anywhere near it. Amen? Anybody want to try? <laughs> Let me just explain this love then, uh, very briefly, a bit, of, a bit of understanding of Greek here. It's agape, the word that's used, agape, love. And the Greek word Paul uses is the same word that Jesus uses to describe his love for us in laying down his life, agape. Agape, as one commentator points out, is a word that prior to the writing of the Bible was not previously in common use. don't know if you knew that. That was new to me. It was taken into the Greek of the New Testament specifically because the love of God seen in Jesus Christ required a new word. God's love completely transcends all human ideas or expressions of love. There's just no other way of describing this kind of love. This kind of love that God showed in sending his son to die for us. As someone else wrote, it's a love for the utterly unworthy. It's a love which proceeds from a God who is love. You know, spiritual gifts are the manifestation of God's presence in the church. We saw that in the definition we used at the beginning. God is love. So the manifestation has got to be one of love. It's a love lavished on others without a thought of whether they're worthy to receive it or not. See, no one else has shown the kind of patience or kindness that God has. No one else has humbled themselves like Jesus has. 
No one else would forgive you, bear with you, constantly affirm you, and restore you like God does through Jesus by the Holy Spirit every day and every moment of every day. Think about the love of God, how wide it must be to cope with me. No one else has that kind of love. So now Paul says, without this kind of love flavoring everything that we do as church, our spiritual gifts are an annoyance. Our knowledge and understanding is worthless. And ultimately, everything we do will amount to nothing. It's pretty bleak. Pretty bleak. But this is the most excellent way. And there's some strong words to follow in this talk today. And they need to be taken seriously because this is the most excellent way that Paul wants to show us. Love must motivate and compel us in all that we do as church. Love must be the atmosphere and the air that we breathe as church. So we're going to look at this passage a bit more closely. Steve. Yeah. Yeah. About five (laughs) seconds. In about five seconds. So we're going to look at this passage a little bit more closely. Uh, Paul helps us to see this excellence by showing us the opposite way of love. Um, We're going to focus on verses 1 to 3, where Paul makes three rather strong statements about loveless Christians. Firstly, that without love you are an annoyance. If I speak with the tongue of men and of angels but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. He says, you sound like this. Can you agree with me? That is just annoying. Um, yeah. Thanks, thanks, Steve. <laughs> he actually did it a little bit too well. I should have got one of the children to do it after the service when we're trying to pray for somebody. That's the most annoying uh, that can ever be. But, you know, there's no rhythm in it. It's indiscriminate. There's no melody. There's no peace about it. Uh, it adds nothing. It is just really, really annoying. Um, it's a joyful noise. <laughs> <laughs> I'm losing it here. Um, but, you know, these kind of people that function this way, they just want attention. They just want to be noticed. <laughs> It's all about their ministry, it's all about their importance, it's not patient or kind, it's loud, it's arrogant, and it's contrary to love. Nothing like Steve Wicking, I've got to say, he's just not like that. Yeah. And Paul picks on the gift of tongues because in Corinth, tongues was the issue. It seems that people who had this gift thought that they were superior to those that didn't because, you see, not everybody had the gift of tongues. And so they would make a show of it. They would shout loudly so that everybody could hear their linguistic superiority. I do both earthly and heavenly languages, they would say. And they would boast about it and they'd make a lot of noise about it, making those that were unable to speak in tongues feel like they were second-class Christians. And, you know, I think that this can still happen today. A number of examples. I mean, sometimes the attitudes towards non-charismatic churches 
Um, one of the problems I've found in talking to people about the baptism and the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit, which we love and we benefit from so much in, in, in some of the more traditional churches, is the way in which some charismatics have made them feel like second-class Christians because they don't have these things in the past. And it kind of is an uphill struggle to talk about these things because of those kinds of bad experiences that they, uh, they've been perceived as being second class or inadequate in their experience of the Holy Spirit because they don't speak in tongues, they don't prophesy. And I've got to say, I've been guilty of this myself. And uh, I'm ashamed to say that. And it was out of a sense of joy of what I found. <laughs> but it had a gnawing, jarring, clanging sound for those that didn't feel love because of the way I expressed it. And for many years, I think the Pentecostal movement has added to this second-class Christian thinking by teaching that the gift of tongues is the evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So what that means is if you don't speak in tongues, then you can't be filled with the Holy Spirit. You, you can't be, because if you were, then you'd be speaking in tongues and you'd have multiple languages and all the rest. I was uh, once in a church a few years ago where there were, was a number of people who'd been seeking the baptism of the Holy Spirit for many, many, many years and didn't think that they had it because they still didn't have the gift of tongues. Despite the fact that they were godly people, they were lovely people and their lives had been changed and they still didn't quite understand that the Holy Spirit can manifest himself in different ways through different people. Terrible bondage. And it's simply not true. Because otherwise Paul would have said it right here. He had the perfect opportunity to say it. Everybody get the gift of tongues, okay? You could have written that. Everybody, you get the gift of tongues and that will solve the problem. There will be no competition because you've all got it. He doesn't say that. He says the opposite. He makes it clear that not everybody speaks in tongues. He says that at the end of chapter 12 where he takes us through a list of rhetorical questions all designed to be answered in the negative. Now, I've got to say, when you go through this list, excuse me, I find it funny that we don't argue about some of the other things he says in that list, but we argue about the gift of tongues, or have done. Are all apostles? No. Are all prophets? No, there's no argument about that. Are all teachers? No. Do all work miracles? Now, come on. Do all of you? No, obviously that's the answer. Do all have gifts of healing? Anybody? Uh, do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? No, no, no. I think there's a humility needed <laughs> for some of us who have perhaps thought that way in the past. Another way I think that churches can offend, because that's what this passage is about, really, that your tongues are an offense to people. Um, and I think another way we can offend or be an unhelpful in using that gift is by not using, not giving an adequate explanation of tongues when they're used. So as Paul says in chapter 14, verse 23, he says, if 
He says, so if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues and inquirers or unbelievers come in, won't they say that you're all crazy? You're all out of your mind. We had somebody visit our church when we were children. um, Somebody came to visit our church and there's a boy, uh, I think he was about 10, and he asked me after the meeting, he says, why was everybody sitting there going, because <laughs> he thought that's what they were doing. It was so in- unintelligible and nobody had explained him. Now, admittedly, he was 10 years old, but I think it needs to be explained. I think people need to be helped to understand that that's what it's about, which is why we make it a practice of explaining it and interrupting even after a tongue has been brought so that we can help people to hear and to receive what's going on. Although I've got to say, I don't know if this has been your experience, especially if you're from elsewhere, uh, that in our culture it doesn't seem to be such a problem these days with the gift of tongues. I mean, I've found that non-Christians seem to find that it's actually quite okay. They're, they expect us to be weird. Um, it's actually people that have been brought up in, with a kind of religious background that struggle with it more. So we need to help those people. We need to help them to understand what's going on. But this is the most excellent way, Paul says, to use spiritual gifts, is to use them in the way that is considerate, patient, loving, kind, to use them in that way. Love-saturated tongues build us up as individuals, and then they strengthen the church. Otherwise, they're just an annoyance, and it's better not to do them. Secondly, Paul says then, without love, you are nothing. Doesn't hold any, pull any punches, does he? It's verse two. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. You know, even if you know everything. Everything. Imagine you could know everything. Imagine if you could explain anything. There was no theological argument that you would struggle with. Imagine you were that good. If you could do anything, if you had the most amazing, miraculous powers, Paul says you're nothing if you don't have love. It doesn't matter if you have international recognition, if you've led a million people to Christ, it doesn't matter if everybody speaks well of you and you are respected by all the most respectable. Your ministry, your fame, your reputation according to Paul, is worth nothing if it's not saturated with God's love. Do you get it? It's quite staggering to think about that. Maybe that's too grand. Okay, even if you know the Bible back to front, even if you read in the original Hebrew and Greek, if you accurately predict the future and prophesy to kings, we've got grand again, Even if you do all those things and you think you're really somebody, you are nobody if you're not patient, kind, and humble with the love of God. That's what Paul says. See, these kinds of people who know everything but have no love, they're very difficult people to be around, aren't they? Nitpickers, legalists, the kind of people who use their superior intellect to diminish others. You've only got to spend five minutes on the web, actually, to find some of these people. Uh, I was uh, looking up some information on a well-known international ministry. I just wanted to know a bit more about this guy's background. 
And, uh, and so I came across this website. I'm not going to tell you the name of it, but just in case they hear this. But they set themselves up, it says, to bring, to keep us all on the straight and narrow. And there are a load of really heavy verses about getting it right, you know. Deception is in the church was its bold kind of title. And from what I can see, everybody on that website that they mentioned was deceived except for them. Which was a bit concerning, really. I wondered who was deceived. But, and I was appalled at some of the things that were written there for all to see. Superiority, sniping at the sidelines, pulling down valuable international ministries with no fear of judgment, the consequences for the body of Christ, and certainly no humility or love. And with a kind of fascinated horror, I spent a little more time looking around, putting some other names in. I was thinking, I wonder if my name's in there. It wasn't. Uh, I'm obviously not bad enough yet. But a lot of the names of my friends were in there. A lot of people, anybody who was anybody in our family of churches, New Frontiers, or who were a bit better known or had bigger churches, their names were there. Sometimes it was just their name, as if that incriminated them. And other times there were descriptions and things that they'd done or said, or uh, unsubstantiated allusions to things. Venom and vitriol. It was horrible. Written by Christians for Christians. And these kind of things shouldn't be, should they? There's no love in there. There's no humility. Knowledge, or so-called knowledge, without love is very dangerous. It's a cancerous sore in the church. Paul says that these people are nothing. And I actually find that quite helpful. These people are nothing. If you don't hear love in them, if you don't feel love in them, they're nothing. You don't take any notice of them. You don't have to give them the time of day. You don't have to worry about what they say. There's no love in them. These people are nothing. Without love, our prophesying, our knowledge, and our understanding is worthless and we're nothing. But the opposite is also true. Knowledge and understanding isn't the issue here. If the love of God is your motivation, if love is your preoccupation, then your worth is astonishing to the body of Christ. Knowledge with love is just wonderful. Teaching with love is like honey. And we've benefited from that, haven't we? We've had some people here to speak with years and years and years of experience, and it's just like honey dripping from their mouths as they teach us. Knowledge with love is wonderful. So the most excellent way to bring correction, to confront error, and to give direction is love. As my dad would often say when I was just starting to preach, he would say, well, other than all the negative things he would say (laughs) about my preaching, um, but uh, he would say, he said, you could say anything to anybody if they know that you love them. You can say anything to anybody if they know that you love them. If it doesn't come with love then they've got no obligation to listen. Thirdly, without love, Paul says, you will, without love, nothing you do will amount to anything. I told you it was going to be pretty heavy today. <laughs> I'm just going to have to take another sip of water before I go on to this one. This is serious stuff, isn't it? Because look at this verse, verse 3. If I give all I possess to the poor, all. 
If I give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but I do not have love, I gain nothing. I gain nothing. And I think this is actually quite a shocking verse. If I give away everything to the poor, even if I were to be destitute, if I were to lay down my life as a martyr, that's the literal thing, if I was to give my body to the flames, that is to be burned at the stake, even in such extremity, without love, there will be no eternal reward and you won't gain anything. And so these kind of people make a show about sacrifice. And this is serious because it's here that our understanding of the love of God can have life and death implications. But you know, I've struggled with this. As I've been looking at this over the last couple of weeks, how can it be possible? I mean, surely these two acts, giving away everything so that I'm destitute, laying down my life like that, is... These two acts of self-sacrifice are the nearest that you can get to a practical expression of the most unselfish kind of love. How is this possible? Giving away everything, voluntary martyrdom. Surely these must be actions that God applauds. Is God not obligated in some way to reward such personal loss and sacrifice? There are all sorts of... And you've only got to think of the world, the number of people who give away stuff and make incredible sacrifices. No. God is under no obligation to respond to it. Because even such radical actions can only be motivated by self-interest, not the interests of others, if it hasn't been done in love. We're so... We're such fickle creatures, it's so hard to know how much of it is genuinely self-sacrifice or how much of it is genuinely genuinely self-interest. It doesn't make any difference how much money you give or how much you serve. It doesn't make any difference how much you suffer for the needs of others or how much pain you go through. Without love, you will gain nothing. The most excellent way to give and to sacrifice and even to die is love. We must give only because we love the poor. We must love one another and the church. That's the only motivation for giving. Otherwise, it's truly better if we don't give, if we don't suffer, and we don't die. (laughs) We suffer for our love of Christ, perhaps even for the church, although, thank God, we're not persecuted like Paul at this time, but we may be. There are plenty of opportunities on the horizon with some of the things that are happening in this country. But even if we are persecuted and ultimately we have to die for our faith, the only gain is where we do it for love. So there's some pretty weighty thoughts there, some pretty heavy ideas, yeah? I mean, the standard of love is incredibly high. And as I said at the beginning, it's unattainable for us in our human strength. None of us, sitting here today, have perfect motives. None of us are sufficiently free from our own desires, sufficiently unselfish to live up to this kind of love, which kind of leaves us on our knees, really, doesn't it? It kind of leaves us on our knees, which is the right place to be. 
because God has already demonstrated his perfect love to us. We have a greater love than Obama here today. If Obama was to come and give me a hug, it would be nothing compared to Jesus. God, who so loved the world, sent Jesus to die and take the blame for our shortcomings. I'm so glad about that. So loved me that he took the blame for me. And it's only by faith in him, motivated by the same love that he demonstrated to us in such a sacrifice, that we can ever gain anything in the kingdom of God. And the gospel, the gospel is the answer to this problem of love. We are justified by faith. It is by grace that we stand. There's no other way. And because of this and this alone, we can have hope today. There's a wonderful verse in Romans chapter 5, verse 5. It says this, that our hope doesn't put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The love that we strain for and we can't attain to has freely been poured out, like that water spout that we're hearing about prophetically earlier. It's been poured out from heaven into our hearts. I love the authorized version of that verse. It actually says it's been shed abroad. It's kind of got this extravagant wastefulness about it. Love, the kind of love that we're talking about, doesn't come from our own efforts or our attempts at perfection. It's the gift of God, and it's a fruit of the Holy Spirit. The love of God is the natural outcome. It's fruit of the workings of the Holy Spirit through us. And so just as we have to be filled with the Spirit to gain spiritual gifts... We have to be continually filled with the Spirit to use them. The love of God. So I said, I think this kind of leaves us on our knees, but it leads us to the cross, to the only place of hope for us. We need God to work in our hearts. If we're going to live with this kind of love, if we're going to minister with this kind of love, we need God to do it. Through us. And so I want us to, to respond to him quietly. And we're going to sing a song actually to respond. And while we're singing the song, um, why don't you just confess? It may be that as you've been hearing me today, that you've been thinking of some rather unloving thoughts or words or behavior or motivations that, that you've been guilty of. I've not been as patient as I should or as kind, I've been proud, or I've been self-seeking. I want to encourage you just to bring that to God as we sing this song. We're going to sing, Here is Love, Vast as the Ocean. And it's just a wonderful hymn, isn't it? It was a hymn that was used throughout the Welsh Revival. It became the kind of anthem of the Welsh Revival. And it's just a wonderful picture of the outpouring of the love of God because of the cross. That's where we stand today. That's where we stand. So shall we just stand? I'm going to pray for you while the band are just getting themselves ready. I just want to say to you, if you're not a Christian today or you haven't encountered the love of God like that, that you can. I'd love to talk to you afterwards 
if this talk has been a bit of a mystery, well, it could be just because I've not been very clear, I'm happy to answer that as well. But actually, if you don't know the love of God like that today, that you don't have to do anything to earn his favour. That's how much he loves us. I'd love to talk to you. Let me just pray for us before we sing. Holy Spirit, we've got no choice but to come and bow before you, the lover of our souls. We've got no other option than the cross of Jesus. And Lord, that's a great place to come. Because Lord, in your cross, in the price that you paid, in, in the love that you showed, is all of the hope that we need for eternity. Lord, so we lift our hearts to you. We come before you as individuals, but also as a church, and say, Lord, help us to love like you love. Help us, Lord, to be kind and patient be proud and arrogant Lord would you shed your love abroad in our hearts afresh today would you fill us again with your Holy Spirit which is that baptism of the love of God we don't know what other gifts we're going to get Lord when you fill us with your spirit but we do know that your love will be shed abroad in our hearts I don't know but when I first got baptized in the Holy Spirit the only thing that happened to me was peace like I'd never known before and the love of God those two things some gifts came later thank you Lord Jesus let's sing this song shall we as we close